Hi, this is uh, not Sean Connery, because uh, if it were, I would be extremely old. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to listen to podcasts about your favorite movies that you have never seen yet, uh, join us for the 4.30 movie, and perhaps we'll have another Bond week. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a Star Trek fan, you should check out my new science fiction TV show, Pandora, airing every Tuesday on The CW or anytime on The CW app. Check it out. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a Star Trek fan who thinks you know everything about the history of Star Trek, check out my best-selling two-volume oral history of Star Trek from St. Martin's Press, The 50-Year Mission, available wherever books, digital, and audiobooks are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. This is William Shatner. Here are some scenes from a picture we're all proud of. Star Trek II. Captain's lost. Starting 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra. Section 14. Coordinates 22. 87-4. Approaching neutral zone. All systems normal and functioning. Leaving section 14 for section 15. Stand by. Project parabolic course to avoid entering neutral zone. Aye, right, Captain. Sensors indicate three cloud groups. Bearing 316 on four. Closing back. Evasive action. Your protege's first rate. A trifle emotional. She is half Romulan, Jim. The admixture tends to make her more volatile than me, for example. Than you. Yes, I see that. On course to CD Alpha 5, all is well. Good. I believe you know David Marcus. Ah. She's learning by doing. Scientists are always the pawns of the military. We just kept the peace for a, a hundred years. I cannot and will not subscribe to your interpretation of this event. What if this thing we use where life already exists? It would destroy such life in favor of us new matrix. Are you by any chance in favor of these experiments? Logic suggests. Logic? My God, the man's talking about logic. We're talking about universal Armageddon. Trying, sir. Then you know exactly where to hit us. Who? Who knew where to hit us and why? 
Welcome back to Inglorious Trexers. I am so excited. I'm giddy. I'm positive. <laughs> I'm not just excited. I'm giddy today. You're as giddy as a schoolgirl. Uh, I, yes, I am. <laughs> Putting ponytails and inkwells. But uh, I... <laughs> what? What? So we have a great guest today. And you may not know his name, but by the time the show is over, you, you, you will. We all knew him uh, growing up. Um, and I'll tell you why. We have Eddie Egan with us today. And I always knew that name, well, for a lot of reasons. And um, you, you would see his name in the crawl uh, in Star Trek movies. But for those of us, this is this is a lost art who were doing fanzines back in the day. We're doing, you know, little mimeographed uh, Star Trek or sci-fi magazines, as I did. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when I was very young, I had a magazine called Galactic Journal with my good friend Stephen Simak. The guy you would go to to get stuff on Star Trek was Eddie Egan. He was the the guy. He was the guy. He was your connection. And in fact, I remember, I think it was middle school or junior high school or maybe (laughs) it was high school when Star Trek II came out and they had this really beautiful four-fold color um, Star Trek Two. It said at the beginning of the universe, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Right. And uh, with the the paint swashed through it like a missile. And because we were a black and white fanzine, we would always get the stuff from the studio that was color that we could put saddle stitch into the middle. Right. And so he had sent me a bunch of these. And I remember I asked for more. He said, I can't get you anymore. So I sent, <laughs> he was always super nice, by the way. I'll add that. So I, 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 I sent under a false name for another magazine, um, uh, more request for more, uh, under Carson Dial. He, oh, I used to use that funny. as my pseudonym, Carson Dial. He was the only guy who never knew what got, it was. he sent them to me. He said, here's more of these. And he said, uh, send my regards to Regina Lampert or something, <laughs> which is you know, a reference to the movie Charade. Totally, ha- because I would always use my pseudonyms, all the Cary Grant pseudonyms from Charade, you know, uh, Brian Cruikshank and Peter Joshua and Carson Dial. And, oh, boy, and, that's and he was the cut. only one who ever called me out on it. And that was probably, I mean, I was probably 12 years old. I remember that like it was yesterday. You were, you were a very special kid. Mark, <laughs> yeah. that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. I know we don't use words like that anymore. Isn't it uh, politically incorrect? No, you can say special. You can say special. Okay. Well, let, anyway, so that's my Eddie Egan story. But Eddie, welcome to welcome. the show. Tell us a little Thank bit. You. Of, because you, you know, I don't, when, I, when I saw him on well, it was Facebook or Twitter, I mean, I thought this guy had to be like 80 years old. I mean, he, <laughs> I mean, I knew him from Star Trek, much picture, Star Trek two, Star Trek three. Yeah. I'm like, just, you know, he's like, you know, this grand old man. And I guess we always pass this store. It was like, I remember I always passed. It was Eddie Egan floorboards, or there was uh, those, yeah, yeah, on the, Melrose or on Robertson. It was on Robertson. It's now in Culver City. 
Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to do? No. With? No. And Saturday I would always no. see Eddie Egan, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's like the guy who was at at Paramount back in the day. Now he does floor covering. <laughs> that's funny. So tell us about because you're look you're young. I mean, you're you look like you're our age. I mean, how the hell were you involved with all these Star Trek movies? And 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 I mean, we were like and others and a, and a, a lot of other <laughs> things too. So tell us a little bit about. Um, you know, and obviously you're 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 still a huge fan, which a lot of people who've worked on the franchise can't say. Oh, and um, we also have Rob Burnett sitting with us. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that because I was going to say, and I was waiting because Rob also has an Eddie Egan I story. Do. Indeed. And so I was leading up to that. But you want to jump the gun? Let's jump the I gun. I just wanted to set the table a little. Okay, consider the table set. <laughs> no, but Rob Burnett, <laughs> welcome to Inglorious Trexperts again. Uh, one of the reasons I really was hoping you'd join us again as a guest is because you also have an Eddie Egan story. So you're you're kind of a legend in the Star Trek community <laughs> to those of us who who grew up in that in that era. It's well, it's true, and it's 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 taken me 35 years to be sitting face to face with you <laughs> to thank you. To actually, Eddie Egan was the first person that that taught me that not everyone in Hollywood is a douchebag. <laughs> uh, that you can actually meet people in Hollywood that are men, men of their word, and they do what they say they were going to do. And back in 1983 and 84 in Seattle, there was a science fiction convention called NorwestCon, the Northwest Science Fiction Convention, and they would do presentations. I had met people that. Uh, previously that had done presentations for Star Wars for Return of the Jedi and Eddie was there Eddie actually was there and I was sort of this eager beaver kid and came up to him and 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 I said to him how much of a fan I was and was probably pumping you for some kind of information about tell me more you know what's happening and he did a presentation on Star Trek Three, mm. the search for Spock, and of course, after Star Trek Two, everyone's like, "What's going to happen? Is Spock coming back?" I mean, the fervor was incredible, and I had been writing a, a column called Real Life, R-E-E-L, for my high school newspaper, and I explained that to you, and I had known Paramount reps, uh, Louise Hathaway, yep. for a company called Thunder Media, and she would get me interviews with various Paramount people, like Martin Brest, who directed Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills Cop, Cop and I was telling you this, and and uh, you said, I will make sure that you get a pass, you'll get a ticket to the all-media screening for Star Trek Three, and that's when all the critics and all the local uh, media was able to see the movie so they could review it. Mm. And I'm like, sure. I mean, this had to have been six months before Star Trek Three opened, maybe even more. It might have been in the winter of, of 1983. And I, I thought for sure there's no way he's going to remember a kid that he meets at a science fiction convention. And sure enough, it came. It actually came in uh, Paramount letterhead. I mean, it came with, and I was like, oh my God, my mom's like, you got something from Paramount Pictures, you know, and I <laughs> uh, opened it up and, and they used to be like cards. They were, they were beautiful yeah. cards that were pre-printed and yeah. you're invited to an all media screening mm. of Star Trek three. And like, I can't even tell you how I, my mom's like, how did you get that? And I said, well, I met a guy from Paramount. I met this guy, Eddie Egan. And you can't forget the name Eddie Egan. I mean, it's just a cool name. It sounds like it sounds like a movie out or a name out of charade. It yeah, sounds right. like somebody you would meet in a film like some from the forties. You gotta you gotta talk to Eddie Egan. He'll get you in. And indeed, he did. Eddie Egan got me in, and I I was able to go and to the all media screening of Star Trek Three, and uh, it was amazing. So Eddie, 
35 years after the fact, allow me to say thank you, sir, for being a man of your word and Aww. and to 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 it, you were a shining beacon <laughs> when I talked about. I can't wait to get to Hollywood because it must be full of people like Eddie. Egan. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the Rafe Needleman of season two. <laughs> this is so exciting. It, it is very that we're exciting. here I with mean, Eddie Egan. And the fact that you're you're the man with the plan who could get you things. You were like Red in Shawshank Redemption when it came to Star Trek. <laughs> You wow. were that person. I don't know. He Man, didn't get me. Didn't get you things. I, I, the, the first press screening I ever went to was in 1982, but it was not for Rathacon. It was for Tron. It was for Rathacon. Tron. Wow. And, you know, because the thing was, you know, I lived in Brooklyn, and the press screenings were always at these beautiful theaters. Usually Paramount was at the Lowe's Astor Plaza yeah. in New York. And um, so... You know, getting into the city was a big deal. I remember I had, one of my parents' friends took me to see Tron, and they never forgave me. It was Phil Fear took me to see Tron. And he's like, uh, and I was like, thank you so much for taking me to this movie. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know, then you know, I remember those little tickets. It was so nice. Unlike an email like Star Trek Three, you know, we would come in the you know the the little strip, and you come in the mail, and you see Paramount yeah. on in the mail. And you'd be it was like, a oh, real thing. Yeah. It was a real thing, and you line up at these beautiful movie palaces. In the in the city, and so you have a lot to answer for. Yeah, oh. okay. So let, let's <laughs> let's let's talk about this incredible career of yours. We've sort of teed it up by saying how you know uh, you know we benefited as as we lads uh, from your largesse. But tell us about how you got involved in sort of marketing and promotion. I, there are a couple of key people in this field over the years: Charlie Lippincott, obviously with Star Wars; Jeff Walker uh, with the Warner Brothers stuff. Uh, you had Mick Garris uh, who was doing a lot of stuff. You know. Uh, Paul Salmon, Blade Runner, and Dune, and Conan. Um, so there are a couple of like these sort of legendary sort of promotional marketing figures, and you know, uh, love to hear sort of your story and how you got involved, and um, you know, that during that whole I mean, '80s kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I look, I um, I graduated. It, it, I had this career because I didn't want to go to college. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't recommend that as a career path, <laughs> but um, I got out of high school and I promised my parents that I would get gainful employment within a couple of years. And uh, I started working in New York on um, as a PA on various movies shooting in New York, including the first Superman, actually Superman 1 and 2 when it was shooting there. He's like the Forrest Gump of the genre. Uh, <laughs> Everywhere. The Warriors. Um, wow, really? Uh, you went back yeah, to which Coney? Actually led, led to the job at Paramount, Paramount. Mm -hmm. um, because I had to fill out some paperwork uh, when Warriors was ending, and I saw a posting for an uh, assistant in the publicity department, and I said, what the hell, and I filled it out, and I was interviewed and hired. I was 20 years old. Uh, uh, that was October 78, um, and Star Trek, the motion picture, was still shooting and shooting and shooting. <laughs> um, and I worked on lots of movies during that time, I did magazine publicity, basically. But I, of course, had that aptitude um, towards Star Trek. And the people I worked for recognized that. And I began to get more and more involved. So in, you were were you a fan growing up of Star Trek? I, I, I was... I, yeah, yes, sort of. <laughs> I, 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 I realize that's a dumb answer, but... Um, no, it's an interesting I think, one, actually. You know? I think when it... 
when it was in syndication and it was in color mm -hmm. and I knew someone who had a color TV is when I became interested mm, in right. it. Um, but I was never, I never had seen all of the episodes or anything, but I did read that book, The Making of Star Trek. Sure. Uh, is that the name? The yeah, Stephen yeah, Whitfield Stephen book. Whitfield, which which was really more about how the entertainment industry works than, in, uh, for me, it seemed to be more about that than the specifics of the show. Um, so I had a passing knowledge, but um, I got more and more involved in the day-to-day publicity coordinating with the West Coast and planting magazine stories and supplying um, stills on, on Star Trek. And um, I, I actually have a, a pop quiz question for you guys. Do any of you know what the first still image released from the film was from the narrative part from Star of the Trek, film. the motion picture? Yeah. Not from the press conference then? Not from the press conference, not, oh. the, not the crew on the deck. I don't know. Well, Rafe Needleman, where are you? <laughs> it, it was in Time Magazine in February, I think, of 1979, and it was the the shot of Ilya on the um, on the exam table on sick bay. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, and it, you know it's interesting because what people don't realize, or some people don't realize, is obviously the internet did not exist in 1978, nor was it for quite a long time. So you were really just servicing press outlets and local yeah. newspapers, and and uh, Starlog, of course, was based in New York. Yes, uh, Carrie and Norman were still running things. Yeah, and uh, was constantly dealing with them. Yeah, and setting up long lead phone interviews um, with. Wise and the cast, and at a certain point, we were told to leave Doug, Doug Trumbull alone. Like, do not, do not <laughs> interrupt busy. him for anything. <laughs> right, right. Yes, people don't understand too when you talk about Starlog Magazine how vital it was. I think to all of us, absolutely growing up. I mean, it was our only source. Sure, there was also Cinefantastic, which you later owned. And, and there were other magazines. That? Yeah, I owned it for a couple of years. Wow. Fantastic films. There was all these crazy yeah. Quest Star, wait, right. crazy magazines. But it was Starlog that we lived and died by. Did you? I mean, were you guys? Oh, I, absolutely. And I will say about Starlog, as much as I love Cinefantastic, uh, which was clearly the better magazine, but the thing about um, Cinefantastic is it would cover things more retrospectively. Yes. Right. Starlog was the one who was breaking news. Yeah. Yep. So right. the first time I heard about Star Wars was in Starlog. You know, when they had in issue number seven, the two Ralph McQuarrie uh, uh, images. And of the X-Wing fighter on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that was all they had. It was a one-page yeah. article, and it was on the cover. So that was disappointing. But uh, Starlog was um, a remarkable magazine in uh, up and through, I think, issue number 27 when they covered <laughs> Galactica, and it was the City of Light, the light ship on the cover. Right. But that, to me, was like the last great issue of Starlog. That was a good one. Yeah, and and but Starlog <laughs> was amazing at the time, um, and you know it had stuff like Harlan Ellison writing a review where he lambasted. Uh, I think it was it was Star was it Star Trek One or Star Trek? Yeah, Star well, Trek yeah, Picture. I know Star Trek yeah. Motion Picture. He wrote a savage review, right. uh, which I didn't agree with, but was a great read. And Starlog had the painting of the Mike. It was the Mike Minor painting yeah, of oh, the yeah, Enterprise that was a on cover. the cover. That was a yep. Beautiful cover. And then they launched their spinoff magazine, Deep Space Nine, uh, Future Life, which was originally Future, but they couldn't trademark Future, right? So right. they changed it to Future Life. They were they had bad luck with titles because remember Fangoria was originally called Fantastica. And then they, for whatever reason, they changed it to Fangoria. Hey, Star Spock was on the cover of Fangoria number four, issue four, with Spock, and then R two and three PO were on the cover for so, six. I had anyway, a lot, I had actually had a lot of uh, they they would dedicate issues 
mm-hmm. in Fangoria, right. in Starlog, and I had quite a few dedic- dedicated to well, me. Because you were so helpful, because there are a lot of publicists who were the gatekeepers who were trying to hold people back, and you really wanted to find ways to work with people. And even like, you know, look, I was probably 10 or 12 when I was doing, you know, there was no sense of attitude, you know, in terms of like we were a little fancy and you were still trying to get us material. We got mm-hmm. a lot of great stills from you, press kits. You know, never had issues. I mean, you know, uh, get, get you know getting material, and we always put it to, to to good use. And you know, obviously, I went on and became an entertainment journalist and did a bunch of uh, real magazines and books. And so, uh, specifically during that time when the motion picture was being finished, tell us a little bit about having to deal with the fact mm. that. People were freaking out over getting the movie done. Yeah, it was, and being able to—that's a good question. It was a really dark time. I mean, uh, for the empire, <laughs> <laughs> there just was there were just no materials. I just I, I remember, you know, part of what I ended up doing was working with a lot of the licensees who were preparing mm-hmm. the you know the pop up book, sure. the Marvel Comics mm-hmm. adaptation, and with the lead time that they needed, to there were no reference their, materials. Yeah, right. yeah. So the, it, it was just so frustrating, but and also like, you know, there were there was no, never a real trailer for the movie, right? Um, uh, just out of necessity, and it was only toward the toward the end of the release campaign when uh, we were on television that right. the first, you know, special effects shots right, were, ready, right. finally, were, were yeah. finally seen by people, mm-hmm. and I remember we got a print as it existed, uh, right before Thanksgiving of 79 and we were cutting up <laughs> slide you know mm-hmm. p- pieces of film to make print, right. to make to make stills of right. the special effects sequences because that's what from, you would send out at the time it was 35 millimeter slides, slides would yeah. go to magazines and newspapers now it's all done digitally of course the human yeah. adventure is just beginning <laughs> at the time were you aware like with the fan community star trek there were conventions and things how did the studio feel about this sort of burgeoning fan, like with Mark doing magazines, and you 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 catered to them. There was well, you know, d- during the up to the re- uh, before the release of the first movie, Paramount didn't really have a plan and wasn't really reaching out to that is obvious fan conventions, <laughs> and that sort of became my little purview because mm. I would slip things to you know because I, I sort of uh, I understood that need I, like sure. if I was really interested in a certain movie and I knew someone at a movie studio who would help me I thought you know I said why shouldn't I do that it's not going to hurt the movie um, but by the time the, the second the third and the fourth came out we were or I was uh, doing those conventions all year round uh, in, uh, in addition to my regular uh, duties but it was it was I, I was also um, people don't remember this but you know in those days the movie studio headquarters were all in New York Absolutely. Yeah, the Gulf and Western yes. building yeah and yeah. um the, that, the, the that was the home office yeah. LA was sort of the factory yeah mm-hmm. and all the decisions were made in New York cuz all the money was yeah. in New York yeah. so yeah you know, i was on the 29th floor of the Gulf and Western building which is now um, a hotel owned by the Trump's president yeah. of the United States well that that man who's in yes. the white house now yes um and on the thirtieth floor, there was a screening room, and they would have dailies every day. And I, w- I was very friendly with the projectionist, and he would stink me up to the booth, and I would watch things. Sure. I saw I very I have a vivid, vivid memory of them watching the uh, memory wall sequence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and just like groaning. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, what can we do? They, what can we do about the wires? This is terrible. Yeah. Like, this is like the, this is like a pivotal scene in the, so we know what happened to that. Um, Darren, can you, for those of, in the audience who don't understand the importance, the significance of the memory wall sequence, which was done by Robert Abel, can you just sort of explain the significance of the scene well, that Eddie's talking about? It, it actually, it wasn't done by Robert Abel. They, they were they were on set supervising the shooting of it. But if you'll uh, listen to Inglorious Trexperts uh, from a few episodes ago with my interview with Doug Trumbull, um, he tells the story about the toughest part of the job when he took over was uh, telling Robert Wise that the memory wall was horrible and and that it didn't work and it didn't fit with the grand scheme of the movie that Robert Wise had in his mind. And um, thank goodness for that intervention and that sort of redirecting of the project um, because, look, Robert Wise was in the middle of trying to get the movie done and finishing shooting. And with uh, the script problems and everything that were mounting up, it was a miracle that anything got shot at all, frankly. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, that the combination of Robert Wise and Doug Trumbull were able to sort of direct this into a finished movie. And thank goodness for that because uh, the, the final Spock spacewalk sequence is amazing yeah and it, it fulfills exactly the same um, narrative uh, role that the that the memory wall did um, but unfortunately the memory wall was shot in front of a a big plastic wall that was uh, strangely lit it was like this blue um, sort of bubbly kind of material that sort of looked like the interior of V'ger but it looked like the interior of V'ger in like a high school play <laughs> And unfortunately, they had the actors and uh, or stuntmen on wires, and it looked terrible. And yeah. occasionally, they had um, uh, Nimoy and Shatner on what were basically teeter totters, yeah. and they would be, be moving them up and down to simulate weightlessness, and none of it worked. Yeah. That's it why they used terrible. it in Star Trek Five. Did you end up seeing any of the the that sequence where the antibodies yeah. attacked them? I've only seen That's the still stills of Shatner. It, oh it, my God! It looks like it, he, it looks like they're throwing things at him from Spencer Gifts. It's yeah. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And look, they were trying their best to get something done, um, and uh, as I said, it, it, it was a, a Herculean task to get it finished. Um, but uh, it's it's amazing the bullet that was dodged. Absolutely. From that, because I think that the inclusion of that sequence in the film would have killed it. Absolutely. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the film as it is, certainly now after the director's edition, um, is uh, is amazingly coherent and, and uh, a wonderful thing. But, uh, wow, the, uh, <laughs> the, the memory wall is... Everyone, everyone seems so uh, enamored with the idea that this exists somewhere. I let it die. Yeah, let it die. It's Th that's horrible. often the the, the uh, th that's often what I found to be the major conflict with fans is that they think just because something exists that it's worthy. Right. You know. Right. right. Um, and you know, 
scenes like that 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 sh- took a week to shoot right. are not thrown away casually. Right. No. Um, and that was just atro- atrocious, atrocious. I'm curious, did you also, you were there when home videos started mm. to become a thing. How was that for you? And, and the, the Paramount was one of the studios that early on embraced home entertainment. Yeah, they did the, the first sell-through on Star Trek, uh, on II, Star Trek yeah. II. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, were you a part of that No, as I well? mean, that was a different part of the company, but... Um, um, but you know, it's interesting because I think that we live in a world now where obviously with the internet, the problems that Star Trek the motion picture had uh, in production um, would have been magnified exponentially. But in the print world, you know, how much were people focusing or even aware of the fact that Star Trek the motion picture was a quote unquote troubled production? Nope. No, not, not hardly at it's all. It's only now in retrospect yes. that we really understand the magnitude yep. of what was. Yeah, it was kept pretty quiet because, you know, we were. You know, there were more licensees on that movie than had ever been on right. a movie prior to then, and and that it, was Don Don Steele who was uh, organizing all that sort of stuff. It was Don Steele. Yeah. Yep. And um, but I remember just before uh, they the cast and Robert Wise and um, uh, Roddenberry were doing publicity for opening week, they had, they were on European. They went on a European and Australian tours, mm. and film clips had to be prepared. Right. Mm. So if you look at a film clip uh, from the the time they were issued, they have they're not color graded. Right. They have just um, amb- the an- the ambient soundstage noise. You can hear them walking on the planks. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you hear that. In the release, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that, there's in a few the other things version, in the release. There's a lot of stuff that goes in there. Um, but uh, it's also the only movie uh, that I've ever worked on that had its press screenings during the day it opened. Mm. Yeah, because because it had the world premiere the yeah. day before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually picked up. I was assigned to pick up Robert Wise and his wife at the airport. And the film. And the film. <laughs> uh, and assi- he didn't actually carry it. An assistant right. editor right. carried it. But, but it was in the car with us on the way. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning, which is the 6th, um, I went with him for the run-through. Right. And he was very, very quiet. He left. He, he said... He, he, I'm, he, he didn't say I've seen enough. He right. he said I, I'm good. Yeah. Um, with levels and the sound and all that. Um, uh, right before Ilya gets zapped. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so he didn't stay for the whole tech. Uh, no. Run through. No. He, Todd he, Ramsey stayed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Who's the, the the his? Editor. It's fascinating because after that after that premiere, he didn't see the film or talk about it for another eighteen years. Until we talked to him for the director's edition and showed him the movie again, yeah, which was amazing. Um, I'd I'd like to know a little bit about uh, during the release for Star Trek Two. Mm-hmm. There was a TV special that was basically a series of uh, original series episodes with interstitials with Leonard Nimoy and then a Leonard Nimoy uh, hour long special. Did you have anything to do with I that? I don't even remember that. It was, it was. I, I think it was tailored for like local TV uh, syndicated oh, stations. Yeah. Oh, did it? Did it show Space Seed? It did. Oh yeah, I kind of va- vaguely remember this now. I I I audio taped it off the 
off the TV and listen to it over and over again. But it was fascinating because it was basically the, the special was Leonard Nimoy telling the fans that, yes, I die in the movie, but it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, I've got another question about Star Trek Two. The Did you deal with art, like key art for the yes. movies? Oh, okay. the, it's the worst no, one she'd no, ever I made. Now, I want to know. Like, that was the Time Magazine insert, by the way. That yeah, you, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, Bob yeah. Peak, of course, famously People Magazine, paint, sorry. Well, he painted the Star Trek, the motion yes. picture one sheet. Bob Peak also painted a yep. beautiful yep. key art image that you can see all over for Several, the rest of the world. Including yeah. Rob's apartment. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I have an Italian Italian poster for, for Star Trek. Two and there are two. There are two things I want to know about the key art. First of all, <laughs> what the hell happened to Bob Peake's art, and then what happened to the title Star Trek II: The Vengeance of Khan, and it was changed to Wrath of Khan. And we all. Well, I'd like I, to hear I, your take. I, on I it. think a lot of people know what happened. Yeah. I mean, it, it went into production uh, at least on the script as the Undiscovered Country. Yeah, Nick right? Meyer was in love with that title, obviously, uh, for a long time. And uh, Paramount just sort of nodded and said, we will deal with that later. And then without consulting him, like uh, some copywriter uh, in New York had come up with some various subtitles for the movie. And one of them was The Vengeance of Khan, which tied in nicely with that ad tagline. copy. Yeah, right. Which is a great um, tagline yeah. at the you know, end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance for The Vengeance of Khan. And then Return <laughs> yeah. of the Jedi became... Did Return of the Jedi? Revenge of the Jedi at the time. That's yeah. right. So, so we sort of ran from that, right. and it became Wrath, and Nick Meyer still hated it. So I was I was learning to type. I was in the eighth grade, and I had a typing class. And every day on my typing assignment, I wrote, "You are now however many days away we were oh, from, from Star Trek II: The Vengeance of Khan." <laughs> and when they changed the name, I was completely distressed because I looked like an idiot to my typing teacher. She's like, "Well, it's, you know, what, what, the names changed." I went, "Yeah, yeah." So I had to write because I like typing out "Vengeance." It was harder to type, of course. Much harder yeah, word. Much harder some, word. Some things got printed with "Vengeance." Yeah, there were a couple of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, oh, you know, it was funny. Because I, I remember you sent me. God, this is just crazy. Some of the, the black and white, you know, the the the, the black and white uh, glossy uh, images from there had Khan's pets on it with Laura Banks. Oh yeah, I love that. I had that up in my room. And uh, <laughs> but a couple, a couple of God, you, I, know, I, you know Laura Banks' name. <laughs> <laughs> and and and. Um, and on it, it said the vengeance of Khan. You know, it says these photos oh, yeah. are not to be reprinted. Yeah. Da, da, and crossed out his vengeance and, and in ballpoint pen. It says oh my wrath. Gosh. <laughs> so what about the key art, though? The greatest key art in the world. What happened there with that terrible? They poster? just went very sort of like you know we have. I think I think the idea behind it was we have to go as far away from motion picture. the classy motion picture right. look and make it look like a Roger Corman. Action, uh, action movie. Yeah. I, I mean, it includes. It, by the way, it has. Is, isn't that one of the images? Merritt Buttrick with the yeah, knife. With the knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was reshot. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a. I think there are two images from deleted scenes in that collage. But if you look at the collage, I think it's exactly what you said. It's a it's rebuttal like a to motion house. picture. Yeah. yeah. Because. It's explosions. Yeah. It's yeah. phasers. It's like you think the the Star Trek motion picture was slow. Well, this movie has explosions and yeah. and we fire phasers. Even the clips I remember the first time on Siskel and Ebert, I saw right. a clip was the reliant uh, uh, yep. firing of the Enterprise, yeah. and the Enterprise taking that phaser fire. Right. Yep. You know, and it was like this is not 
Star Trek the motion picture. We're not going to have heady discussions about this is going to be, you know, lots of people fighting in space and, and hitting each other and it's going to be. But then they did up until through Star Trek 6 brought back or Star Trek 4 brought back Peak's art, but Star Trek 2 and 3 suffered from Bob Peak having these great pieces of art, especially for Star Trek 3, that were not used in the domestic campaign. Right. They had that horrifically bad by crystal Spock, yes, Spock yes. thing <laughs> when you saw the Enterprise and a bird of prey like up in the corner. Terrible. Terrible. Okay, but, I, could, but Eddie, I couldn't agree with you more. I know. I couldn't agree. a comment about it, I, you know? Yeah, I well, yeah. Um, I got to ask you, because, you know, we talked a little bit about the impact of Starlog, but, you know, in the aftermath of Star Wars, there was this plethora of, because before Star Wars, you had famous monsters and Cine Fantastic. Mm-hmm. That was it, you know, really. Then Star Wars comes out, and suddenly you have fantastic films and Cinema Odyssey and a bunch of these one-shots. Starburst. Starburst. Star Burst. Burst. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so it was all yeah. these magazines. Quest Star. That's that? right. I like Quest Star. <laughs> I did, too. Yeah, there was a lot, a, a a a lot more to service. And, and sort of how did you deal with juggling all that? And then, you know, obviously, you, you know, um, sort of vetting and, and just... Um, uh, making sure you know, and, and dealing with exclusives and 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 uh, um, well, that just becomes a matter of triage. You know, like which of these has bigger reach, bigger circulation, and for the for the fanzines, you just ha- I, I I just thought it was important to make them feel as if they were being serviced at all. Right, right. Because the studio had notoriously not been very yeah. cooperative. Yeah. Um, were you at all concerned about, or was there concern at the studio about the black hole? You know, coming out two two weeks after no. Star Trek, that there was this other science fiction movie that was. No, that, they no. were just concerned about not being sued. <laughs> right, they didn't deliver a movie. <laughs> because you know, again, it, it, we always assume people know this, but the reason that Star Trek: The Motion Picture had no choice but to come out on December seventh, nineteen seventy nine, was because of blind bidding, and Paramount had taken all these advance money from right. uh, the theaters, and they had to have the, you know, any other situation they would have pushed the movie six months you know the movie would have gotten pushed but because they lit they could not or they would have gotten sued they would have lost all this money so lost all the licensees which were lined up for december for happy meals and right yeah yeah, the first the first movie yeah the first movie tie-in happy meal yeah so you went on to star trek 2 yeah i i I was i continued to work in new york uh uh but then i Put my hand up when Star Trek II was announced and expressed interest in going to LA and being the unit publicist. And um, an incredibly easy process. They basically told the filmmakers that there was this kid coming out from New York. And right when I got to LA, the Wall Street Journal article happened. Oh, um, that Spock dying. Right, which, the, the leak. You know, the leak. Mm-hmm. The leak the, we, don't, we have no yeah. idea yes. where that leak came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were told this. I was told to seal that leak source um, <laughs> as tightly as possible. How that worked out for you. With extreme you know, prejudice. It, 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 it didn't... It didn't it, it didn't have it, again. It didn't. I didn't have the best relationship with him, with Roddenberry or his office uh, because of that. But right. um, you know, I, I was serving uh, the ultimate master, which is the studio. They're yeah. paying for the movie. Um, uh, Leonard Nimoy, oddly enough, when I first introduced myself to him uh, um, on the first or second day of shooting. Grabbed me. He said, "Oh, can can we meet at lunch?" And, we, and he had, he he only wanted to know how we were going to handle 
the this uproar. The reveal, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, we're not going to let anyone know anything. We're not going to let anyone know anything at all. We're just right. going to let it fester and let mm-hmm. people speculate. And and he was he was delighted to hear that. And um, yeah. I, I had a great relationship with him from then on. He asked me to come out and work on Star Trek III. Um, I didn't actually move to L.A. permanently until 85. Mm. But, um, but it's interesting because you couldn't have paid for better publicity yeah. than that leak. But yeah. in the time, you probably didn't think that. Only in retrospect do you realize it. Uh, or well, did... I, I, some of us had a hunch that that, you know, it would, it would reverberate now and then. Mm. and people Because it, it was on news there were shows so many everywhere. C- calls and letters every day from this division of Starfleet and right. you know <laughs> and that division of Starfleet uh, various fan clubs and I would say yeah, just relax could you just give a little background to people who are listening what a unit publicist actually does sure because um, the u- fact that you're on a film from the for the whole time is yes. something people don't know uh, a unit publicist is someone who is assigned to a particular movie who deals with um, all the elements of publicity, uh, creating materials, writing production notes, uh, you know, writing the press kit, um, dealing with requests for actors' interviews or banking some, uh, st- strategizing the release of artwork. Um, and on a Star Trek movie, you also have to deal with strategizing how to reach the fans and keeping them interested and happy. Um, and what else do we do? Um well, you set up set visits when people are coming yes. to the oh, set. Yes. Oh, the only or... set visit, we we didn't let anyone on that set, actually, except I think, um, I remember having to take Theodore Sturgeon mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. and Sam Peoples mm-hmm. wow. once, um, I th- but no no press was on that set except uh, in a very, uh, on a day that made very many people unhappy, Paramount was launching Entertainment Tonight. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and Entertainment Tonight just walked onto the set and uh, was where the, the scene that was being shot was the scene where Scotty's nephew, nephew? Yeah, yes. nephew yeah. Peter Preston, um, <laughs> played by Ike Eisenman. Yes. But I didn't know that. Um, I'm looking at my papers somewhere. Yeah. He's laying like bloody right. and, de- you know, so uh, it caused quite a ruckus with the laying actors. Laying on the Ilea table. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> by the way, by the way, is it? Ilia, Ilia, but she says Ilia, and I think Orson Welles says Ilia. Yeah, it is Ilia, but not Ilia. Well, Decker says Ilia. Decker says Ilia. You heard it here first. She right. says her when she Ilia. She says Ilia. Yeah, and Orson Welles said Ilia. Right. So how did you get? How did Orson <laughs> Welles come to do the voiceover oh, for all of the, the you know a vanity thing like? Um, Again, movie. we're just we trying to class, class up yeah. the movie. The class well, up the movie. That was for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah. I should you, clarify. Yeah. Did you deal with Irv Block at all? Yeah, Merv Block. Yeah, Merv Block. Yes. Yeah. Um, because he he has a story of recording Orson Welles. Yeah. Doing those commercials. Yeah. And the trailer, and having a very difficult time getting Orson Welles to say a Robert Wise picture. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the of the you know, animosity that had developed in his mind. From Magnificent Ambersons. From Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And story. that's a fascinating. That's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but those those commercials are still amazing. 
Yeah. It, it will startle your senses. There's one pe- there's I won't take credit for the whole thing, but I wrote part of copy for one of those commercials. Which one? Uh, I don't remember the line. Is it the one telling? But it's, it, it says by taking you by ta- oh, the something yeah. about the future by taking no, you there. I, I know it exactly. It's uh, it 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 will alter your perception, perception of, the of the future, future by, by taking, taking you, you there. there. Yeah. Uh, now, I how can you say that like Lincoln? <laughs> I, I have to say that back publicity materials used to be distributed by the National Screen Service yes. Corporation. Now they had many offices around the country, and there would all the posters, movie posters would go there, still sets would go there, lobby cards the, would go and there, and the old-fashioned press books, and the press the, books, and so would and, the commercials. Yes, and I was on film uh, or two-inch videotape. Yes, the, uh, three-quarter were just coming into yeah. use then, and I had the two-inch videotape of all of the commercials because I got them from a friend who stole them from start from National Screen yeah. Service, <laughs> and I gave them to you. Right, I gave them to uh, this man right here, and they put all of those. Commercials. Oh, is that how you remastered them? That's how we got the tape, and we put them on the DVD yeah. for the director's edition. Later, I remastered. Them. <laughs> right. Yes, I mean because we had no time then. Yeah, I had no way to play this gigantic. It was a huge reel. Yeah, yeah. I had nothing I was ever going to do. They were in this cardboard box. I've been carrying them around for almost twenty years. Yeah. and when Darren got the job remastering Star Trek: The Motion Picture and doing the director's edition, I said, yeah. "Ah, look what I have! I've been and, carrying and this we, around." We were able to get them transferred. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's and it's hysterical. It's, it's just so We've magical because I remember those. <laughs> I remember those commercials from when they were on, and yeah. I, you know, they're. They're great for yeah. for what little material that you it's guys the same had to shots work over with. And over. It's the, exactly the yeah. same shots because I, I I went back and when the when the high def version came out, I remastered all those commercials and put them up on my Vimeo channel. Um, but yeah, I went and found all those clips and you use them over and over again. Yeah. Um, but they're so great because they show you like this big new world of Star Trek that hadn't existed before. Plus, it was so it was so important. It was. You know, Orson yes. Welles made it so yeah. important. Yeah. So and we, he did the trailer narration too. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Same recording. Pseudo trailer. Yeah. 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 We had, um, you know, Bob Salen on the show recently. Yeah. I'm curious, just your your feeling. It seems obviously you didn't deal as much with Gene because he wasn't as involved with Star Trek Two. What do you? What can you tell us about Harv Bennett and Bob Salen? Obviously, that was a somewhat turbulent relationship uh, ultimately. Um, but um, you know, listening to Bob, I mean, he was such a vital part of the making of that movie. Yeah, Bob was the day to day producer of the movie. Um, um, you know, Harv was the head honcho and. We had to pay um, proper respect to him, but Bob was the guy who, you know, had his eye on the budget and would have conflicts with Nick Meyer about it. Yeah, and um, Which they've been very open about. It. They're actually they've had a re- reapproach Ma now. I mean, Bob and and uh, Nick are friends yeah. after many years of really yeah. disliking each other intensely. <laughs> but it was an incredibly cheap movie. Yeah, like the the second one. Um, in, in some ways, the third one is cheaper. It just it looks. Cheaper. It just looks. Yeah, they're, they're also just the, you know the what's that what's the uh, the vessel of bad actors? This the, oh, which one? The Grissom. Yeah. Well, the there Grissom. are so yeah. yeah. There oh. are just so many. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let uh, me ask friends you, friends of Leonard, because yeah. you um, you gave when you talked to Ed Gross for our book uh, Fifty Year Mission, you told a story I had never heard before. Um, and I found it, you know, really amazing that nobody had, had heard this. And I wonder if you can a, at all expound on that, which was that they had actually been developing, after the success of Star Trek no II, yeah. a, a prequel 
set on uh, SETI Alpha yeah. 5 about Khan. It was called Prison Planet. Yeah. Mm. Well, now, this was something Hart Bennett was developing? Yeah. The studio was developed. Really? Yeah. See, that's yeah. amazing. That is one lost little nugget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I was so fascinated, you know, obviously many years later when uh, Meyer was sort of shown the door at Discovery, they... Um, uh, you know, sort of his parting gift was to develop this miniseries set on SETI Alpha 5, which seemed very redolent of that. Can you, is there much more you know the, about? I, I struggled when I was talking to Ed to remember the name of the writer, the writer, and I've never been able to recall it. Um, although it, in my mind, it somehow bounced. I, there was a movie that Paramount released during that, around that time, somewhere between uh, Star Trek two and three. Um, Escape from called, Alcatraz. Called uh, no, uh, um, uh, Savage Islands, mm. with oh God, I don't even remember who was in it. But it was th- this writing team who, whoever wrote Savage Islands, and you, you could look it up. Mm-hmm. I think was developing this Prison Planet movie. Wow! So it would have been a con, and this is a time where. There, prequels were not very much in vogue the yeah. way they are now. So, what an interesting foresight for them to think, oh, let's develop a prequel with Ricardo with, yep. with none of the Star Trek cast yeah. that would just be set on. Wouldn't that have been fascinating? Yeah. Uh, it's such a, it's such, I, wonder, I guess once they started developing Star Trek Three, it was, it was the same reason. Yeah. I mean, you know, studios d- develop a lot of things that like spin-offs and offshoots and they just, they're on third deck and they never right. get yeah. above any level yeah. of activity and, and maybe the script wasn't good but I remember yeah. seeing it on production reports right, yeah. right when the studio when Star Trek 2 was close to being completed was it apparent for the studio that it was a hit yes Did they know that it was a yes. smash well yeah uh, there there were several internal screenings and then we staged um, a screening in Kansas City mm. uh, and I was friendly with a, a, a Star Trek fan group in Kansas City and tipped them off so that we mm. had the you know the base is loaded. Right. Um, <laughs> um, Kansas City, here we come. And oddly enough, we had entertainment tonight outside the theater, <laughs> um, uh, interviewing people on the way out. And you know, but then the, the cat was out of the bag on Spock. It was, but no one cared. Right. Yeah. So I mean, not that no one cared. I mean, it didn't. Right. No one cared that the news was out. Was there. this after the reshoots or before it the reshoots? It was before the reshoot. Okay. Yeah. And then they did another one, and it was even better. Yeah. Yeah. And then they went and, and added that ending. Well, which reshoot are you talking about? The 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 coda. The coda, yeah. Yeah, because there was a there was a there was a little bit of reshooting on the actual film. Like they reshot. It, it's very very clumsy if you look at the movie. The moment where uh, Kirk meets his son, where, yes. where they they tussle. Right. Oh, it's the worst. Right. There's some the inserts the like movie. they put up one wall of that thing, mm-hmm. and, and it's just it's just that is terrible. the worst fight in the history. Of, well, that you, was one of the worst sets I've ever seen. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, and why now? Why uh, do you remember wh- why that scene was reshot? Um, um, I think that there was he was the the way it was staged initially that Shatner wasn't registering enough shock mm-hmm. that mm. he had a son. a son right yeah. right and then they have their little fisticuff with the yeah. knife and everything yeah. Ugh, ugh, yeah. ugh. <laughs> I have another another question um the Star Trek the Star Trek publishing that Pocket Books mm-hmm. did there was a ton of it for yeah. Star Trek the motion picture they did Lee Cole's peel off graphics book one of Chekhov's the, Enterprise Chekhov's Enterprise we had Walter Koenig on one of the great things I think about Star Trek Two was the novelization that Vonda McIntyre yep. wrote, and yeah. she had written the entropy effect 
which is the first original pocketbooks novel did you have under the timescape imprint under their timescape imprint did you have anything to do with helping vonda mcintyre get to write that novel and i i I remember supplying her with a lot of material and at one point we let her see certain scenes of the of the film Mm. while she was writing she was on a really tight Mm. right schedule In fact, Pocket asked me right after Star Trek II opened to write a making of Star Trek II book, right? Which eventually was Alan Asherman Asherman did it, yeah. Which is actually quite a good. And he interviewed me for most of it, like so. It's like I I could have (laughs) probably written it, Um, yeah. But Star Trek II was a very very um, interesting production. It was like you know, shot the regular, shot for fifty two days of the main unit. Yeah. I mean, regular schedule, but very, very tight restrictions on when people um, were out. The stage was closed. Right. There was no overtime. Right. It was all very, very, very strict. Because up, up until nearly the end, it was going to be a TV movie. That was the that was the, the story. F- that was the facade yeah. for the uh-huh. unions, yeah. actually. Oh, to be it was produced okay. under the TV, TV division, but it yes. was never going to be. That a TV. makes sense. I mean, this is a horrible thing to say, but maybe I can, I can say it. Maybe about M- M- Merritt Buttrick, who has passed. But at one point, he told me how much he was making oh, per yeah. week. I was making more than him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was new. <laughs> it yeah. was a big break for him to Kirstie play Kathy. was making son. the same, right? Because yeah. anyone, she, she anyone who was on a weekly schedule, yeah. whatever, you probably know what those things are—those SAG schedules. Yeah, yeah. We're just making scale. I was no, such no. a big Kirsty fan until I found out she was a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love, I love her. In that you know movie. that most of that most of her lines are are looped, right? Really? I mean, I do know, but she and she's talked about this, and other people have talked about this that. She was sent for acting lessons midway through that movie. Yeah, and then she also had a death in the family. Her father, um, her, yeah, her father, I think, passed during during the movie, and she missed a few days. But she looped. They those, made her loop. Yeah, they made her loop, but it wasn't another actress like no, a no, Bond no. movie where like some no. like Nikki no. Dazale comes in. And no, they yeah. they uh, they had her loop almost every line. Yeah. But film. she had no. Speaking of Kansas, I mean, she was from yeah. Kansas, I think, and she um, she came in, um, uh, you know, with very very little experience. I mean, uh, as well. Um, but yeah, there was a there was a point at which they had to you know send her away to do, yeah. you know. But I mean, look at the end of the day, she's really good in the movie. Yeah. So and she made out all right after. Yeah, she also. she did okay yeah. for herself. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, and she, I, if I recall, didn't do a ton of publicity at the time. She and wanted to. She wanted to, and they didn't want her to. Yeah. Because mm. I remember I, I used to contact her. God, I can't believe I remember this stuff. Her manager trying to get an interview with her, and it was like always like, oh, she's not available. She's not available. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she was a big Star Trek fan. Like, this was a big deal for yeah, her. Yeah, but I don't think it was a happy experience for her. No, it wasn't for yeah. a number of reasons, yeah. some of which we will not talk about, no. which we're all privy to. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate, which is has a lot to do with why Kirstie didn't come back. A lot of people say it was money, but there were some things that happened on set that just weren't um, particularly happy for yeah. her, which is a shame because, of course, it would have been great had... You know, she'd been able to come back for Star Trek Six, which is what right. Nick wanted her back for, instead of Kim Cattrall's Valeris, who also Kim Cattrall was 
I, I like Terrence Valeris, but I, I know too. you're not a Star Trek Six fan. I'm not a Star Trek Six fan, but that's and all you right. never will be. <laughs> yeah, uh, and men have worked. <laughs> so Star Trek Three, uh, you know, you come off this this high of, of Star yeah. Trek Two. You work with on any other films in the interim at that time? I mean, uh, whatever Paramount was releasing then. You I know. mean, that was the great era. I mean, that yeah. was the Katzenberg Eisner yeah. era. I mean, that was the Officer and the Gentleman era. That yeah. was. I mean, yes. they they could do no wrong. I mean, it was the antithesis of today. I mean, well, Paramount Mommy was like the Disney. Well, yeah, okay, they could do some wrong. No <laughs> I more. Saw that movie four times. It was awesome. So, what you're so, talking about. So, um, but Paramount was on fire. They were the Disney of 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 the '80s at that point. I mean, they really they were just putting hit after hit. Top Gun and yeah. and Officer and Gentleman. Forty eight hours. Um, trading places. Trading places. I mean, witness. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just uh, you know uh, Raiders and Temple of Doom. Yeah, Footloose. Yeah, right. I mean, it was just I mean, like, yeah. airplane putting classic after and classic. Airplane to the sequel. Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> oh, I want to hear Airplane what, Two the sequel things, stars. Like, I, I happened to see a little bit of Airplane Two the sequel uh, the other day. It was on Amazon Prime, and I just uh, turned it on for a second. And I remember there, there, Star Trek Two had such a shitty props budget that they just rented a lot of stuff from modern, modern props. props yeah, yeah. And some of them are also in of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's in in the same scene with William yeah. Shatner where like that William orange Shatner. neon thing that goes terrible <laughs> stuff. Just That's terrible. Oh, I mean that regular one one set. Oh, oh my god, that is such a bad set. Oh, god. And it's all modern props. It's like yeah. oof. That view screen. Yeah, the that, view the screen view with screen. the with the round hole cut yeah, in the front. Yeah. yeah. You know they did their best. They did. They, they and did you know what? They I guess it worked out because yeah, I guess it's, it's a beloved right movie classic, not just a Star Trek classic, a science fiction That's classic, true. a movie classic. So despite you know the limitations of budget and schedule yeah. and everything else. Tom's chest was real, damn it. It was. Oh, if I have was, to hear that story again. <laughs> was there ever any... Um, the way I remember it, when I saw the film theatrically... Originally, there was no two That's on the right. credits. That's correct. It was Star Trek: The Wrath. It just it was done Star for the home for the, entertainment, right? Home version. So, was there a, any five. thought of releasing the film as just Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan and not a two? Uh, you mean in the advertising materials? Yeah. No, that that was a that was a complete disconnect between, or a, it may have been a um, a give to Nick because mm. he hate he hates like right. that lazy thing with. Uh, they won't know it's a Star Trek movie. Right, right, they won't know right. it. They think it's the uh, the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's that's why it's different on the main, or it was different on the main titles. Right. And, and they changed it, like the, you said, for home video. Yeah. I thought that was, and that was one of the first. That and Officer and a Gentleman were the first two sell through yeah. video sets. Yeah. Yep. It, it's funny uh, going back to Star Trek Three. It, it seems that 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 sort of is a is a touchstone for all three of us because that's also the first film that I went to a press screening of. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's very strange because I I, I won the ticket through a, a radio show oh, yeah. giveaway. Yeah. Uh, and I was in Chicago, so I was far apart from either coast. So I had no contact with anybody from the yeah. showbiz. And so this was my first experience you know, and I got that Paramount envelope too yeah, yeah. with that. It's like with, the gold the ticket. Card. It was it's, like it was amazing. It's amazing, yeah. and the fact that all three of us sort of had that yeah. same experience mm-hmm. with Star Trek Three, yeah. and then we had to go bash it in an episode of of uh, Inglorious Trek. Well, I didn't Spurs. like it back then. <laughs> That's and, true. And <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because they, at the, they weren't called press screenings; they were called all media screenings. Right. 
you know, for all media, right? You know, um, broadcast and and print. But they were in these big, big theaters, yeah. you know, yeah, big, um, nice theaters because yeah. they wanted to... and primarily filmed by radio promotion, right? Uh, winners, right? Yeah. You know my, you know my first uh, press screening in a screening room, a tiny little like twenty seat screening room. Tell us, War Games. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. War Games in '83, and I, I remember I missed my subway stop. I was coming in from uh, on my own on the subway to go to the screening, and I ended up somewhere in Harlem, and uh, it was, and then I was like, "Oh, I missed my stop," and I turned around, went back, got there just in time. Was I that at uh, MGM? On it was at MGM. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was very excited to walk into the MGM building, yeah. and I'm like, "I got there just in time," which is. Uh, <laughs> And the things you remember. So anyway, Star Trek III, anything unique about that experience for you? Was it, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you said you had a good relationship with Leonard. Yeah, that Leonard makes it easier. when he said, we're, we're really doing this. Uh, would, you, would you be on board to, you know, lead the charge? And I said, absolutely. And um, Eddie, we're bringing Spock back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it was... It, Uneventful, stage bound. Yeah, uh, they wanted to go to Hawaii. Yeah, but they, they didn't also, want to spend the money. They did go outside for one scene. In, they went to Occidental College in Glendale for the when they're walking with his body past on Vulcan. Oh right, yeah, for right, the rest of the ending. Pool, we like, love you, Mr. Reflecting Spock. pool. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the stories about Mr. Shatner hosing down. Oh, that's the famous scene right. are, are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I can't imagine what why entertainment you would tonight that. just happened to be yes, there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> single-handedly saving Paramount Studios from a blazing inferno. Yeah, right. you know we love Bill, obviously, and yeah. oh, uh, he's a riot. And uh, but yeah, the, the the story at the time was that he picked up a fire hose and right. joined with the firemen hosing down the fire when the Star Trek Three uh, set caught fire, and uh, the fumes were toxic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but of course you know i guess the the, the real story is like sort of suppress ops were staged after the fact yes yeah. <laughs> but i'm curious about that time i mean in terms of mark you were saying that paramount really was as a studio on fire mm-hmm. that's literally summer, yeah. figured well yeah. the summer of 19 19- <laughs> 84 right. was huge for them. Yeah. I mean, after the ma- major success of Raiders, they had Temple of Doom coming out, yeah. and then soon after, Star Trek Four. Yeah. So, or Star Trek Three, pardon me, yeah. the search for Spock. What was it like at the time? Were you living high on the hog? Where was 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 <laughs> was Paramount the, the place to be? Well, Paramount was certainly the place to be. I mean, um, but you know, there's n- there's always pressure. You know, uh, when you're doing well, they expect you to keep doing sure. well. Right. So. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was amazing how many hits came out of that studio. Uh, yeah. And every ride like, comes to an end between like seventy seven and eighty six. And sure. then Eisner and Katzenberg go to Disney yeah. and they hire Leonard to do uh, Three Men and, and a Baby, baby. Yeah. right? You know, so uh, and the Good Mother and the and the right. Good Mother, yes. <laughs> and what's the one with the Holy Matrimony? Oh, uh, Holy Holy Matrimony, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All the all classics, all the great. Great Leonard Nimoy film. Um, so, uh, so, and then did you after Star Trek Three? Did you do Star Trek Four? Or I supervised it. I, I was in LA by then. I was mm-hmm. I was living here then. Um, so I was there every day, and was in San Francisco and San Diego when they were shooting there. Uh, that was you know a, a very breezy. People were all in good moods yeah. uh, until the end. There was a little bit of a. a a ruckus between um, 
Nimoy and Bennett, which I never really understood. And they've talked about it. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, uh, you know, Leonard always gives that quote or gave that quote, um, the training wheels were off after Star Trek Three because he was really under the thumb of the studio and Star Trek Three didn't get to do much of what he wanted. It was still being produced under the aegis of the TV division. Star Trek Four, he got to do a lot more. And, you know, Harv, I think, still felt, you know, it's what happens in the second season or third season of a TV show when you're sort of running the show and then the cast takes over. It was kind of like a TV thing in the sense that Leonard now felt he had earned a little more autonomy. Right. And, Nemo- and, and Bennett still felt he was the guy who right. he was the saved Star guy. Trek. Right. Um, and so they were really butting heads and it got to the point where Leonard threw him off the set and yeah. didn't want him back. They, um, and, and, f- Star Trek Four was an actual movie, movie. Like, right, that yeah, was that produced, was when yeah. and the, and spent real and, money. And I think you know, just uh, the movie people acclimated toward Nimoy and considered right. Bennett a TV TV guy, TV yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's really true, and that's why they hired Don Peterman. It's also why Star Trek Four looks so much better yeah. than Star Trek Three. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean it's it's and and it, it, did you expect it to be this? I mean, Star Trek Four is a huge success, and it's the first movie that, as they say, transcended the it was cult. A breakout. Yeah, yeah. So did, and it did even you see did that a little better internationally. internationally yeah. yeah, but you even had that opening, that famous opening of uh, Star Trek Four, which was the cliff notes as to what happened in two and three, yeah. Yeah. so that the inter- because it was called the voyage home overseas, so they would uh, understand like what was what going was, on. Yeah. yeah, which is is sort of fun. It's, I think it's narrated by Shatner. The, the, I don't the, remember. Yeah, it's on one of the nine thousand yeah, DVD right. releases. What about you know? They're famously in Star Trek Four. They want or yeah, Star Trek Four. They wanted Eddie Murphy to be yeah. in the film, and at that time, he was a monstrous star mm-hmm. in Paramount. He'd come on his breakthrough in, in Forty Eight Hours. Then of course, Beverly Hills Cop was a giant hit, and I think eighty six Beverly Hills Cop. Cop Two came out. Yeah, and in between there, some Raw, Eddie yeah. Murphy Raw, right. all huge. that stuff. He was gigantic, yeah. and he was a Star Trek, a Star Trek fan. fan. Yeah. So what happened there? Did were you? Pretty I think it was that? just a, a lot of you know indecisiveness, and he basically chose to do the Golden Child. Yeah, he chose right. to do the right. Golden Child. He, he, you know, it was up to him. The studio didn't force yeah. him one way or the other, and he chose. It came down to the two things, and he thought Golden Child would be a new franchise for him, and he chose to do Golden Child, yeah. and. Um, you know, obviously, that was not a great choice. Yeah. Uh, it would not be the last bad choice Eddie Murphy made in his career. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this: so, after Star Trek Four, you you didn't you did not work on Star Trek Five? No, yeah, no, you... I I left Paramount in February of '87, went to Fox. Some would say yeah. you left just in time. <laughs> um, how, how was? Um, and then over at Fox, did you stay working on genre stuff, or were you doing much more? I was more? like the head of publicity at Fox for three years. I was there when The Abyss came out. Right. You were there for Die Hard. I was there when Jim Cameron <laughs> crumpled the one sheet and threw it at uh-huh. the head of marketing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Die Hard, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I was at Sony for five years, and then Universal for 18. That's right, so, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. But you were at Fox. That was a pretty good time. That was a pretty it sweet was time too. Big diehard working girl, like um, Predator. Yeah, yeah. Did you do stuff on Exorcist Three? Yes, at the very beginning. I might have met you during that. At the very beginning, it was before I left. It was it was shooting actually yeah. when I left. That's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and did yeah. did um. You know, it's interesting, though, because, you know, you talk about not having been a huge Star Trek fan. 
you know, right when you got Star Trek, right when you're coming off the Warriors, but you know, you'd seen it in syndication, you liked it. But it seems as though now you're a much bigger Star Trek fan. Oh, like, I am. I mean, yeah. You, part part of it has to do with I I really really liked all those people. They were love like for the most part lovely people. Like DeForest Kelly, yeah. the nicest man on earth. Has anyone ever said anything bad about D? I do I not think so. I cannot imagine. I mean, he was he just... and his wife were the were the sweetest, most generous people. Mm-hmm. He would tell stories that were just amazing about coming to California as a young actor and, you know, being sent to dance class and then being given wardrobe right. to wear out on the town with a date. And, you know. He was, you know, um, he was there during the leg- during throughout the star system, and he's so interesting because he he worked alongside so many stars, but nobody really knew who he was. He was right. kind of a right. chameleon, you yeah. know. And he worked in all those old westerns where he would be like the fourth build guy, the fifth. Well, he so, was in Gunfighter at the OK, at OK Corral. Corral. I know we talked about this, <laughs> and it's just so interesting, you know, when you see D in a lot of these movies, and also so often playing the heavy, you know, playing yeah. the villain, and when he was such a sweet man. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because for a lot of these guys, Star Trek was the beginning of something. And for him, it was sort of the end of a long career. It was such a great capstone for yeah. him. Um, but, you know, I, 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 of all the, the Star Trek actors, he's probably the one, well, I, I wouldn't say who I knew the least. But I remember, you know, late in his life, having a chance to spend some time with him. It just, and I was like, boy, everybody's not kidding. This is the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> yeah. And he's so lovely. Um, yeah. And, and also never had that. Uh, you know, the the supporting players all try to one up each other, mm-hmm. and they like to talk about a certain subject, right? You know, a certain leading man, sure. And and it's you know the day players. I I think I told I said I said to Ed for the book I said um, I think they t- tell these stories so often and add little details, right? Every time that they they. That it then becomes the factual stories. It's, right. it's the Brian Williams. The, the effect. truth slides away yes. a little bit. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because I've always said that. I said there's the real story and the convention stories. And what happens is I think they've gone to these conventions so many times, and every tell the story, and they like the response so much that they change yeah. their they story, add details, and, and none of it bears any tr- resemblance in truth anymore because no. it's evolved so much. Like V'ger, that it, <laughs> it is completely transformed into something else, and that's why going back to the primary documents and going back to other people, that and I've always said the history of Star Trek is like the history of Rashomon because everybody sees it a different way or mm-hmm. presents themselves in a different light. Well, Doc, talking to Bob Salen on this show, yeah, you know, people forget when I after we talked to Bob Salen, you were there, you confirmed that I mean he was the producer of Star yeah. Trek too. Yeah, you know, and you were there the whole time. Yeah, but Harv was a great salesman. I mean, he right and a oh, great and, showman. Yeah, and Harv would also, you know, explain life to you now yeah. and then. Right. And <laughs> you know, when Bob was getting a little bit of the spotlight, you, you uh-huh. know, yeah, it was expected to be shut down right pretty sure. quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, look, I, and I, I think I believe Bob when he says that the studio came to him to produce Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. and because they had been old friends, he turned them down. Right. And you know, it, it's it's uh, you know, it's just amazing that uh, you know, you know, after the success of Star Trek Two, that Bob, you know, was the one hit wonder that he never got to do anything again yeah. uh, in Star Trek. You know, given what he brought to that. Uh, that that you know to that franchise. I mean, you could say he was the man who saved Star Trek in a sense. Yeah. Um, no, all that rigor was was Bob. I mean, you know, just you no, know, you get less, less, less. Right. You know, and yeah. 
So your tenure with Star Trek, it sounds like it was a good couple of years for you. I mean, you had a good yeah, time, good, good experience. It was. It was very interesting. Um, you know, I never thought, imagine growing up that I would work with these people who were all individually legends yeah. and all had little, you know, quirks and uh, eccentricities, uh, but they were lovely people for the most part. Does it amaze you to see how Shatner continues to reinvent himself? Astonishing. I don't know where he, where he gets that energy. It's incredible. Yeah. We all should. At 87 years old. Yeah. 88. I mean, he's, 88. He's going to be 89 now in March. Now he's got a commercial for a CPAP machine. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> he's starring oh, in a, a new... CPAP machine cleaner, actually. He's it, starring it, in a new movie with Jerry Ryan. Did you see this trailer? It's like this demon hunting movie that he's in. Oh, God, no. It's unbelievable. But he's going Can't back wait. to... Uh, uh, Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga for, for Thanksgiving appearance, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so back to the Enterprise. I mean, and then uh, you know, and the one that amazes me is that George Takei has become this um, pop culture staple. Yeah, absolutely, uh, you would have never saw that coming. No, you know? and now he, you know, uh, his memes and his commentary, no, and, and his, he still does Howard Stern, yeah. and yeah. And he's in the terror right now. Second right. season. Yeah. I mean, it's so, yeah. I, I, you know, all these guys, you know, they say they're no second acts in Hollywood, but, like you know, third and these fourth guys and are on to, like, yeah, yeah they're 18th, yeah. which is fantastic. Because, you know, they've given us so much and they continue to give so much. But this is so interesting to hear Eddie's take on uh, his experience, you know, over the course of a decade working on these movies. And, uh, you know, it's really... You know, one of the great things I think about the show to sort of shine a light on people who who may not be household names, but who are such a big part of the success of of Star Trek over the years. Well, Eddie, if you found those years uh, enjoyable working on the Star Trek movies, we found them really enjoyable too, uh-huh. watching them. So, yeah. thank well, you, thank you, and yeah, thank you for no, you thank know, you guys for having me. I, I um... thanks for hooking me up thirty five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> At long last, Rob finally got to express his gratitude. Were people in Hollywood douchebags? You know what, to be honest, not really. I've worked with people that have definitely been. I've got a few stories. But for the most part, I think, especially when you're working in production, yeah. production itself, uh, production doesn't suffer fools gladly or douchebags yeah, gladly. Yeah, there's no time. I have yeah. had more experiences, delightful experiences, working in production with the best people because you have to be good. You have to be good when you're working. You have to make your 12-hour day. Mark knows this. Darren knows this. Uh, you got to work hard and fast, and you've got to be good at what you do. Otherwise, you don't get asked back. Well, yeah. I think that um, you know Paramount always had good people. I remember it was Tom Phil- Phillips. Tom, Tom Phillips. He was a lovely guy. Yeah. Uh, you know that there was always, you know, some really great people. And I, you know, I know that. Um, I mean, it's a conversation for a whole nother day. Is a look back at Cinefantastic, all the bridges they burned. But um, <laughs> uh, but you know. Uh, you know, I met a lot of these people, you know, because of Fred Clark when I was doing all those Star Trek stuff. But um, uh, just, um, it's just, it, you know, it's another lost kind of era, that sweet smell of success kind of era of, you know, the print magazines and the publicists yeah. who are feeding them information and, you know, slowly doling out. Yeah, I have no, uh, when I think back, and I, I think you guys were saying versions of this, when I think back to when I was a kid, I can't even remember how you would get information. Yeah. It was um, like osmosis. It sort of appeared from yeah, nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I guess some of it was in daily newspapers, yeah. but but if you were a movie fan, it was it, you know it just didn't seem like there were ways to ferret out information on. Well, I mean, I, for me with Star Trek, you know, 
until those magazines started to hit, like Official Poster Magazine and uh, uh, about Star Trek conventions mm-hmm. and uh, or about Star Trek fan, fan clubs, clubs yeah. Yeah, about Star Trek fan clubs, you know, and then later Starlog and, and, and everything. You know, yeah, information was few and far between. And also as kids, nobody would give us information. Like, I'd have to pedal my bike to the local drugstore and scour the magazine racks and see if there was even a picture of a Star Trek character. Mm -hmm. And you'd buy the magazine because your parents didn't know that was something you were interested in until later and you could tell them. But yeah, it's funny now because also now parents are telling their kids about like, you know, know more about Marvel or know more about the stuff that their kids are into. You know, it's like me and my son, it's like, who knows more about Star Wars? I think he does. But, you know, it's like back then, parents weren't interested in the things we were interested in. No, not at all. I mean, so it's very different uh, world that we live in. Well, anyway, like I said, it was really great having you. I'm so glad that you decided to come down today. Um, And it's so great to meet you. like I say, this is like a Rafe Needleman moment. Uh, so uh, I want to thank very good company. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Eddie. I, I want to, and, and now we know you're not the floor guy either. So thank another question answered here on Inglorious Trexperts, and and thank you guys uh, out there in the uh, cyberspace or whatever we're calling it these days uh, in the matrix pod space. It's pod space for uh, joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 4:30 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writer and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies the rebel and the rogue a star wars podcast every tuesday uh best movies never made uh which is just a great podcast i highly recommend it um every monday and uh, if you enjoyed us please rate us five stars on apple um and you can follow us at inglorious trek on twitter inglorious trexperts on instagram there's some great inglorious trexperts swag on inglorious trexperts.com uh i suggest you check it out if you like the logos and some of the other stuff there's do it you know you want to do do it and uh again uh, as always a very special thanks to bill ritter everyone here at electric surge network including producers natalie mascali and cynthia of course and, of course, Dean Devlin, without whom the show would not be possible. So thank you, everyone. And until next Saturday, keep on trekking. And gloriously, of course, I'm not going to say anything about the turbo lift sound. Shh. Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.